Hello, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking at the University of Cambridge and beyond. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Simon Beard, a research associate at the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk at the University of Cambridge. An existential risk is any threat to the long-term potential of humanity. So these can be natural risks like asteroid strikes or anthropogenic risks like engineered pandemics, unaligned artificial intelligence or runaway climate change. As Simon mentions, people have been thinking about existential risks for centuries, but only recently, in the last decade or so, has a fully-fledged movement coalesced around dealing with them. They're motivated really by two thoughts. Firstly, that we might be able to mitigate these risks. And if so, that doing so is really incredibly important. Simon seemed like the perfect person to talk to about all this, and you'll hear why. In our conversation, we start by discussing the influence of the late philosopher Derek Parfit, and how his writing motivated this new concern for safeguarding the future of humanity. We then ask what working at an existential risk research org like CSER actually looks like, how to interpret probability estimates about major one-off events like global catastrophes, and whether climate change amounts to an existential risk, either directly or indirectly. Lastly, we talk about Simon's experience running as a political candidate, how incentives in academia may be broken, and what COVID has taught us about the fragility of global systems. Without further ado, here's Simon Bitt. I'm Simon Beard, and I'm Academic Programme Manager at the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk. So the centre's job is to look at all the biggest scale risks facing humanity, um, with a particular focus on those with the potential to cause the worst possible outcomes. When we use the term existential risk, this is derived from the idea of human extinction. That's where our existential is not about French cafes and absinthe and so on. Um, It's literally humanity going out of existence. Uh, But we actually use the term slightly more broadly than that, Um, in that it can refer to any number of very bad scenarios which are on the same scale as uh, human extinction. So, for instance, there are possible futures where maybe humans survive in a biological sense, but the population is much smaller and we're all reduced to basically surviving. We don't live such good lives. We don't have um, culture and healthcare and education and all, you know, lots of, uh, of, of these kind of things. And we don't, most more importantly, we don't have any potential to improve in the future. And although in some ways that might look like a much better situation than human extinction, actually the difference is kind of marginal compared to the difference between that and a possible future where we do keep all of our potential and all of the good things. And maybe we can go on and, and um, colonize outer space or achieve some kind of transhumanist existence where we el- eliminate all suffering um, and just have so much more perception and knowledge and experience than anyone can ever imagine at the moment. Or even if we don't do either of those things, maybe we can still carry on improving um, in the domains that we're already quite good at, domains like healthcare and education, and we just become better and better at doing what we're already doing. Um, but to lose all of that potential would be, would be really awful. The other kind of really bad outcome that we're concerned about is obviously situations where maybe you still have lots of people um, and they still live potentially very long lives, but 
um, their lives become unbearable. They're full of suffering um, or they become dominated by some global dictator um, or for whatever reason, um, they no longer live good, worthwhile lives. Um, so all three of these things we view as being equally bad and we're really concerned about the different ways in which these things might come to pass and how what we can do now to prevent those. So we will be talking about existential risk in particular, but first of all, just for background, could you maybe tell us how you arrived at philosophy in general? Well, yes, my, my, my own story is... is a lot of what I would call happy coincidences. So um, I actually arrived at philosophy in a rather stupid way um, in that I really enjoyed playing Civilization One when it came out in 1991. And I was six at the time and I had no idea how this game worked. Um, really no idea. I just completely messed around with it and I made bad decisions and most of my civilizations never got anywhere or were just sort of one city very, very, very slowly developing technology while all around me, you know, the world developed and all sorts of things happened. But one of the things that I noticed quite early on was that um, if you were the first person to research philosophy, you got another tech for free. And so I liked this idea. And so I always made sure that I could research philosophy first. And having had that seminal experience, I decided that philosophy, whatever this thing was in my six, seven-year-old self, not really understanding any of these things, um, that that was what I wanted to do. Um, And so I really put my mind to uh, what did I need in order to study philosophy and learn about it. Um, And... So I then heard that at Oxford you could do this degree in philosophy, politics and economics. And that sounded to me like the degree that you'd need to study if you wanted to be good at civilization or to do the sort of grand things that civilization talks about and plays with. Um, So that was that was definitely what I wanted to do. And having kind of made that choice at um, that was now like 11, 12 at this point, got pretty pretty single-minded about going to Oxford and studying PPE um, and then got to Oxford and studied PPE and, and very much enjoyed it. But um, obviously, I was no longer really thinking about life in terms of a video game. Um, so I then had to decide what I wanted to do with this. And I, I thought, I still do really like philosophy. I still do think it's very... Um, it's, it's a very enjoyable thing to study and I seem to be reasonably good at it. But I would really, really like to find a way that my study of philosophy can be useful and worthwhile, um, because it seemed to me that a huge amount of what philosophers talked about wasn't useful or worthwhile. So when I left, I went and I worked around various think tanks and Westminster policy places, NGOs. I was the only person I've ever heard of who was a freelance researcher in the House of Lords. I got a House of Lords security pass and just hung around meeting rooms, seeing if any peers needed some help writing a speech or something and tried to make ends meet, getting very small um, (laughs) commissions to do very small research tasks. But that was a lot of fun because the peers who I were working on were working on all sorts of different policy issues. And so I was spending my life working in quite a lot of detail, writing a speech or reviewing a bill on one small thing. I did 
uh, feed-in tariffs. I did reform of the coroner's system for treasure in the United Kingdom. I did sexual and reproductive health rights. I did a thing, a project on sustainable security. Um, I spent a long time with a peer, uh, Lloyd Halton, who works for peace in uh, uh, Palestine, Israel, and the Lebanon. So I was doing briefings for him on that. And just basically, you know, wandering around all sorts of things, researching um, all sorts of diverse topics and finding out how to make a difference in the policy world. And I was really enjoying that too. Um, but I saw that none of these people actually wanted a philosopher. And I felt actually I had really enjoyed and found really useful my undergraduate studies. So I went back to the LSE and they did a course on philosophy and public policy. And I kind of hoped that that would be if any course could help me to find a practical use of my philosophical skills, that would be it. Um, and it kind of didn't. It was a, a, quite a fun course. Um, lots of people there who all had the same kind of idea that I did, but no real answers as to how to go about it. Um, but at that time, my political work had kind of uh, dried up, um, largely because of that all the changes with the 2010 election and changes in the way that the House of Lords expenses were paid, which means everyone had slightly less money to pay me with. Um, basically, I wasn't making any money doing that, but I was managing to make a good living as a private tutor. And this made me think, well, at least I quite like this teaching. And, you know, I can always influence people by teaching them um, good philosophy and good economics and so on and they won't want to go on and be philosophers they'll want to go on and make a lot of money in city firms or you know actually make a go of this political career path that I've been you know having having fun messing about with but hadn't really seriously been pursuing um, so that was then my idea that I'd at least just go and teach these people so I, I had to do a PhD for that so I did my PhD and in my first year of my PhD um, while well, I was still trying to really settle on what I wanted to study, I read through Derek Parfit's Reasons in Persons from cover to cover. And I loved that book. Um, I, it's my favourite book ever. Um, I just think it is amazing for the breadth of its, of its vision and just how many really powerful arguments you get one after another after another after another it's kind of exhausting to go through all of them but after I read it I knew that whatever I did in my PhD I had to do something from Reasons and Persons um, and the bit that I liked best was Reasons and Persons book four which is about the ethics of future generations um, so that's what I did my PhD on and the 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 field is called kind of population ethics, but it's really ethics of future populations. Um, and it so happened that just as I was finishing my PhD, uh, the Future Humanity Institute were looking for a postdoc to work on population ethics. And this was odd. There hadn't really been any other jobs advertised for population ethics. It was seen as a bit of a quite a mature and bit of a dead end field at the time. Um, so there weren't many other PhD candidates. So I got this position at FHI and really kind of stumbled into the existential risk community. And here were the people who had actually achieved what I wanted to do. When I was at the LSE looking for practical philosophers, I found lots of people who wanted to do this work, but no one had the slightest idea how to do it. Whereas when I got to FHI, I found the people who not only wanted to do what I'd been looking for all along, but were actually making it work. Um, and like, okay, I've really got to make this work. 
So I had a one-year postdoc. Um, and actually, the very first thing I did in my postdoc was I'd seen that there was an advert for a job um, at this new centre in Cambridge, which was a longer job. And I thought, I definitely want to stay in existential risk. So I'm just going to apply for this other job because then it will give me more, more research time, more time to actually familiarise myself with this field. <laughs> so um, pretty much the first thing I did at Oxford was to apply to Cambridge um, and got the job and came to Cambridge and had been in love with the field and with Caesar ever since. And to think that it all started out with a game mechanic in Sid Meier's Civilization. Exactly. That's such a, such a great anecdote. Um, I'm so glad you mentioned Parfit because I wanted to talk about Parfit and maybe arrive at existential risk via that book, Reasons and Persons, which is also yep. one of my favourite books ever. I think it's completely amazing. But there were plenty of moral philosophers at the time Parfit was writing, coming up with thought experiments somewhat like Parfit's. What was different about what Parfit was doing that made him so exciting and so ultimately influential? So I think the thing I most liked about Parfit, and I think this is such a, a byproduct of his happy accident of ending up um, at All Souls. Um, and there's a story about that as well. He wasn't really, he wasn't meant to go to All Souls, but he wanted to be a historian and he couldn't get a, he, he failed to get a job as a historian. Um, so he went and, and learned philosophy in 18 months um, and got this position and also studying philosophy instead because that was what was available for him. And so he became a philosopher. But because of who he was and because of what having an All Souls Fellowship means, no teaching responsibility, no responsibility at all, really, um, he was able to see a problem that was a really difficult, thorny problem and not worry about the fact that he couldn't solve it. And I think most philosophers, when they come across a problem, they need to solve it, maybe not immediately, but really looking for some kind of solution within you know, months or at the very least years. Whereas Parfit saw this problem in population ethics. Um, I still haven't been quite able to get the date, but it was sometime around 1969, 1970. And he never solved it. He just kept on working at it for almost the next 50 years. Um, and he improved and improved and improved upon both the problem and specifying it more and more precisely and in more and more detail, and also the possible solutions and the ones that didn't work, but then just all the ones that hadn't been tried yet. Um, and I think he did very similar things in, in the other areas where he worked so, so much in um, the moral mathematics and in personal identity and in distributive ethics. So he was just such a creative force within philosophy because he could see a problem and just love it as a problem um, and just carry on working at it as a problem and working and working and working. And when you read it, because the first time I read him as an undergraduate, actually the, the first thing I ever came across with Parpit was the discussion of average versus total utilitarianism, which is uh, the very the genesis of the repugnant conclusion. And I actually wrote this essay saying, this is ridiculous. How can anyone be bothered by this thorny, intractable problem? This is just a bottomless pit of doom. And it is. But actually, in exploring this bottomless pit of doom and, you know, its intricate caves, you find many hidden treasures and many wonders. Um, and I think that was something that he could see. It's something that Sidgwick saw before him, and Parfit was very heavily um, 
influenced by Sidgwick, and I think Sidgwick's methods of ethics, you get the same feeling. As he said, you know, as Sidgwick said of the methods of ethics, it's a very long book whose first word is ethics and his fi- final word is failure. Um, <laughs> and in some ways, reasons and persons is actually kind of similar. Um, on, what, on what matters, Parfit's other book is much more triumphalist and he does think he's solved the problem. But I think many people think it's, it's kind of a lesser book for that very reason, because his solution to how can we bring together um, utilitarianism, con- contractualism and deontology, these three big schools of ethics, it's a very interesting solution. It's a very elegant solution, but it's also most people think not the right solution. Whereas in Reasons and Persons, he never does produce any right solutions. He doesn't try and advance something as this is where you can get. He just says, if you want to think about these problems, here's 20 years of my thinking about them. So you don't have to do this. You can do the next bit. And to any young philosopher, I think that is such a, a wonderful thing to, to come across. Um, again, going back to Sidgwick, someone gave this epitaph about Sidgwick that um, he scouted the landscape um, and found, found a desire of his place dug in his spade and vigorously turned over clumps of soil until he came across something sparkling and golden, then walked away, leaving his, as, his, um, as his legacy just this one sign saying, dig here. And that's what Cedric did, and that's what Parfit did. And if you come across something like that, someone saying, this is a really interesting problem to work on, you've just got to follow that. So very briefly, for listeners who might not have heard of like the repugnant conclusion or this this uh, huge problem, right, in, in population ethics, can you very briefly explain the rough intuition about it and exactly why it is so interesting? Yeah, I mean, the very rough intuition is just, it seems like future lives are valuable if those lives are worth living. Um, and we could have a huge number of future lives, and each one of those lives would make the world a little bit better, the universe a little bit better for its existence. You know, each of these people would be glad. But if we look at possible futures, and we consider one possible future in which there are many people who all live amazing lives, who are all not just glad to exist, but really happy and really fulfilled, and who have all the good things, what Parfit referred to as the best things in life, and they enjoy all of these things, it seems to us that... Um, another population where everyone was barely glad to be alive would be better, even though there could be so many more of these people in an infinite future universe. You know, no matter how big that other population, that other future population was, it doesn't seem to us like it would be better than the population in which lots of humans exist and they all live these, these lovely lives. But not so, you know, lots, but not so many future people exist and they all live these really lovely lives. Um, and that's a, that's a pretty obvious intuition. I think a lot of people have that intuition. It just turns out that when you try and account for that, um, all, of the, all of the various ways that you might account for that, all of the various ways you might work that into your future ethics, including anyone that you're thinking about right now, dear listener, they're all terrible. They all have really bad implications about saying that inequality is good or that suffering can be good. (laughs) Just like lots and lots of things which we definitely don't want to agree with. So the difficulty is just how do you come up with a a theory of, of, of moral philosophy that incorporates this one intuition that we have that says, 
let's go for a future in which people live really great, fun, fantastic lives and not even if there might possibly be some, and it's really important to stress that this isn't like, there's no practical choice anyone's having to face. This is a theoretical thought experiment. But even if there were some other population in which so many more people could live, but their lives were much worse, um, that just wouldn't be a better, a better possible future for humanity. So I guess to frame it in this kind of total utility, average utility uh, framework that you mentioned uh, yeah. before, it's this kind of thing of what is better, uh, having just a few people living a lot of good lives, uh, very good lives, or having a lot of people living lives that are barely worth living, and actually yeah. finding a coherent reasoning as to why you would choose one over the other also means you need to accept a lot of repugnant uh, other things, and hence the repugnant conclusion. Exactly. So total utilitarianism would say go for the larger population so long as it's larger. Average utilitarianism says go for the smaller population in which everyone's utility is higher. The average utility per person in that future is a lot higher. The problem with that is that if you imagine you're going to have this one group of people, large number of people who all live very happy lives, but we might add to that one of two other groups of people, one of which has a very large number of people, all of whom live lives that are worth living, and the other one, a smaller group, but still substantial, in which everyone lives a really bad life, a life that they hate, a life full of suffering. Um, it's quite plausible that the smaller population where everyone lives a terrible life would actually lower the average t utility of the group by less than the large population in which everyone's life is worth living. And that seems, so this is this idea that the suffering is, is not bad in this, in this situation, or at least it's, it's um, less bad than just having lots of people who live lives a bit meh, but they're, they're fine, they're, they're worth living. And that, that, that cannot be right. Um, you know, so there's, I mean, if, if you wanna know more, read reasons and persons. Um, but don't unless you unless you're willing to potentially have your life taken over by this. Let's just lower ourselves a little bit deeper into this uh, pit of doom before we move on. There is a, uh, I guess, related but distinct question or problem uh, when you start thinking about future people, which is this so-called non-identity problem. Do you want to just explain uh, what that means? Well, I have a problem with the non-identity problem, which is Parfit proposed this solution very shortly before his death. He literally sent in the paper with the solution and then died um, <laughs> in less than eight hours later, um, between when he proposed this and when he died. So no one's able to kind of follow him up on it. But he has this proposed solution. I think it's brilliant. And the vast majority of people think it makes no sense whatsoever. Um, so I'll, I'll try and sketch the problem and where Parfit thought the solution might be. But um, if, it all, if it leaves the listeners scratching their heads, I can only apologize profusely. So the situation with the non-identity problem is a kind of prior problem of population ethics. And that is, in what sense is it good that future people exist? So normally, when we say that something is good, we say it's good because it's good for someone. So if, you know, you tell me a joke and I find it really funny, that's good because it's made my life better. And we know the benefit and we know who the benefit fell to and we can see that that benefit made this person 
better off than they would have otherwise have been. The problem is that this account of goodness relies upon there being two counterfactual situations. One in which I exist and my life is made better off by the fact that this good thing happened to me, and the other of which I exist and my life isn't made better off. My life is worse because I didn't get this joke. Uh, and so we can see the difference that the joke is making. Now, when you're thinking about future people and you're thinking about whether or not they exist, then the counterfactuals are slightly different. There isn't a counterfactual in which a future person is better off and one in which they're worse off. There's a counterfactual in which they are better off and one in which they don't exist at all. And it's not clear in what sense it is better for me to exist than not to exist at all. It certainly doesn't seem to me that I can say it's worse for me not to exist than to, to, to exist, because how can it be worse for me when I don't exist? Um, so, so this is called the non-identity problem. And it, it's only really a problem for certain views about what makes something good, what are called personal views, where we have to say who is benefited and how they're benefited. Um, but a lot, of, a lot of ethical theories do take a personal theory of good. So, for instance, contractualists, where people have to agree to the principles of morality, they rely on a personal theory of good. I have no reason to agree to something that doesn't benefit me, um, either a real reason or even a hypothetical reason. Um, and lots of people are contractualists. Um, some people are just um, what are called person-affecting consequentialists. They are, they're consequentialists. They just care about the consequences of our actions, but they think that something is only good if it's good in this um, person-affecting um, sense, uh, that it makes people better off than they would otherwise have been. Now, this bothered uh, Parfit a lot because while he was happy with what he called impersonal ethics, that's ethics that just sums up all the benefits, he really, really wanted to see different ethical theories brought closer together. And if some theories couldn't accept the value of future lives, then this would be a deep and troubling difference between these two kinds of theories. And it would also seem to imply that some theories might say, for instance, that it doesn't matter, or at least it doesn't matter very much if humanity goes extinct. For instance, if we go extinct in 100 years' time, that might not matter at all, because it might not make anyone who's currently alive worse off than they would otherwise have been. It only affects these future people. And he found that very troubling. Um, and he first thought that this meant that we had to reject all person-affecting theories. But then, very late in his career, and really his final year of life, he came to the belief that that was a mistake. And instead, he advanced a different view. He said, it may not be better for me that I exist than that I don't exist, but it is still good for me when I exist with a good life. And there is nothing good about my non-existing. So even if it's not better for me, it's still more good for me to exist than not to exist. And he, he thought that we could then rewrite all the principles of person-affecting ethics, including contractualism, replacing notions of benefit and better for with what was more good for or less good for. Um, and as I say, personally, I think there's a lot of mileage in this. Um, and I've actually, I recently had a paper published with Patrick Kaczmarek where we specifically expand on this view and argue that there are good reasons why contractualists should take the same view as consequentialists about human extinction. Um, but most people think better for, more good for, what is this? Like, what, this is just linguistic trickery. 
So, um, yeah, it's the whether or not this is a viable moral theory is a point yet to be proven. Okay, fantastic. We will point listeners to that paper you wrote in the write-up. But the bottom line is, so Parfit wrestles with all of these problems and a few more besides um, with respect to future generations or future people, right? In this book, Reasons and Persons that you mentioned. And then in, I think, the final page, right? He writes, he writes this, he says, what now matters is how we respond to various risks to the survival of humanity. So we come to this conclusion that we ought to think a lot more seriously about existential risks. Um, I guess my first question is, how did he end up with this conclusion after doing all of this thinking about future generations? Just If I just back up a bit. Um, so I read Reasons and Persons and I was really enamored by it. And I really wanted to meet, um, meet Derek and talk to him about his ideas and talk to him about what I was working on. And um, I actually went to Sweden. He was being given this prize, a shot prize, which is a, kind of like um, a Nobel in philosophy. Um, the Orshot Prize in Philosophy and there was this big awarding ceremony in Stockholm and I knew um, a a wonderful philosopher Gustav Arrhenius who's at the uh, Swedish Academy and who was instrumental in Derek getting this prize and he invited me to come to the award ceremony so I went to the award ceremony and I saw Derek afterwards I said Derek I've I've completely changed my life you know your book is amazing Um, I have all these ideas can I talk to you about them and he said no I don't have time. Um, send me your thesis and I might read it. Um, and like, okay, <laughs> that's like, I've never had that happen before that I've actually taken the time. And he wasn't, he wasn't being rude. I later realized this was just Derek. He really didn't mm. have time. He'd allocated all his time to thinking and reading and writing. And he, and he knew his, he was in bad health. Um, mm. And he didn't want to waste any time on me. So I sent him my thesis and for the next three years, I kept on sending him like, I've done some revisions, you know, I've made some updates, this is my latest version, et cetera, et cetera. And then at uh, one point, very shortly before I, signed my, I, I submitted my PhD, he invites me to go and see him. He says, Simon, I've read your thesis, it's brilliant. <laughs> Come and see me in Oxford. It's like, thank goodness. Like, firstly, how wonderful to have him say that he liked my thesis, but I can actually go and talk to him. And I had this long conversation with him. Um, And one of the things was having read so much about him and thought so much about his work, I really wanted to try and understand him a bit more and how he fitted into it. And the impression that I got was he started doing philosophy in 1968, which was a really tumultuous year. It was the year of, you know, Apollo 8 people leaving the Earth's orbit for the first time. It was the year of the assassination of you know, uh, Martin Luther King, it was a year of the Paris uprising. It was a year when people were really thinking about changing the world. And actually, Derek really wanted to do that. Um, And he really wanted his philosophy to do that. But the thing was, he was also this philosopher who just was quite happy spending his life exploring this bottomless pit of doom. and so he, he kept, but he kept on adding these bits in his work to say, and what we learned from this is that we need to save humanity. Mm-hmm. And he really had that conviction. And that really mattered to him. And he really, I think he really believed that one of the reasons that people are reckless about the future is that they don't think that there are 
objective moral facts which say you have to care about future generations. They think that moral subjectivity is correct and you can more or less do what you like. And he thinks that if people realized that morality is a universal system that provides reasons for everyone to do certain things, then they would have to act differently in the face of the challenges that we face. I don't think that is the problem, but I think Derek really believed that that was the problem. And that's why he kept on coming back to this. What now matters most is that we have to save humanity because he'd been talking about the ethics of future generations. And he realized that we have, you know, future generations have all of this value that we are not appreciating and we are acting in ways specifically, you know, he was concerned about nuclear weapons, but very much climate change um, for, for most of his life. He, he lived a very humble, very simple life. And he was very concerned about the environmental impact of his behavior. Um, but that we were putting all of this value at risk. And he really wanted to make that case over and over and over again. The problem was that he really wasn't very practically minded. So he never really applied his theories. He just kept on producing the, the normative arguments for why we should value human extinction. And I think he kind of trusted that people would come along and make use of this argument. And actually they did. And one of the most revealing things for me has been the kind of the last generation of scholars who were very deeply influenced by Parfit, which I, I, I very much count myself, um, but also people uh, like Tim, Tim Campbell, and um, Will McCaskill and Toby Ord. Um, so many of these people are now still doing philosophy, but they're not doing normal philosophy jobs. They're working in the existential risk movement or they're working in the effective altruism movement. They're working to actually make a big difference. And I do think this is part of Parfit's legacy because he did all the hard work. So in a sense, we don't have to we can take his theories and his pronouncements and really start working on the communication and the application. And that that is now, you know, reputable, sincere philosophy, which Oxford and Cambridge and other prestigious universities will support. Um, and will actually then allow us to be working in, in the real world to, to, to solve some of these problems, to achieve what really matters that we achieve. Before we talk about those problems directly then, um, Parfit had his own maybe kind of idiosyncratic reasons for caring about existential risks and safeguarding the potential of humanity. But what do you, Simon Beard, think are the best reasons for taking existential risks seriously? Why have you more or less um, decided to work full-time on these on these problems? I mean, that's a really hard question because... I really want to, to showboat and say, it's because of the astronomical value. And that really does matter. But I have to say, hand on heart, it is just the best job in the world. It is for, for several reasons. Firstly, because working on existential risk means just working on all the hard problems. We don't work on just, you know, AI or climate change or nuclear security, we work on all of those things, but only the hard bits, only the bits where we have very little information and very high stakes. And there are very few other people working in this field. And if, if for some reason you get a kick out of, you know, as Lewis Carroll said, trying to do seven impossible things before breakfast, 
this is the field for you. And I do actually think that a lot of people, particularly, I guess, people like me who maybe did come in through it, through Parfit or through um, some of the other philosophers who've drawn people into this field, you know, Larry Temkin and Peter Singer and Jeff McMahon and people like that. There is a certain element of we, we do not do these things because they are easy, but because they are hard, as, um, as Kennedy said. Um, but, you know, that, that's certainly not all of it. I think if, if saving humanity were really simple, I don't think the people who are working in this field would be working in it, or at least the balance would be very different. But doing hard problems that are also the problems that are relevant to, you know, securing humanity's future. I mean, you really don't need anything more motivational than that. So let's talk about what actually doing the impossible uh, looks like. So you work at the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk. Um, What do you actually do on a day-to-day basis? So for me, the really big question actually was, I have these moral theories and I want to apply them to um, to case studies. I want to use them to help guide future decision-making. But all of these are theories that are numerical. They're quite mathematical. You know, you put in numbers for future populations and, and well-being and levels of probability and risk and even levels of uncertainty. There are ways of quantifying these things. But you need to have some numbers to plug in or that you can't get anything out of it. And what I realized was that means if I want to use these theories, no one else is really providing these numbers. No one else is providing this information. Or if they are, I really don't write how they're doing it. So the big challenge that I perceived when I entered the field was the question of methodology within existential and global catastrophic risk assessment and the lack of methodology. The fact that there were some areas of the field that are quite rigorous because there are well-identified problems. So I think within the field of nuclear security and within the field of AI safety particularly, there are some well-understood, well-described technical problems that need solving. But actually, within a lot of the rest of the field, there's a lot of bold speculation and people calling for you know, governance solutions in very vague terms. And I think we're getting better at it and the quality of what is being said and what is being called for is improving. And I think also that there is, there is an element of the, the good being drowned out by the many. You know, it's far easier to say something in this field than to say something worth listening to. Um, so, I, But I think there is, there is some very good scholarship out there. But I still just, this question of how likely are certain scenarios and how much of a difference can we make and where are the, where are the, the, the positive tipping points? Where are the points where we can make interventions that will have the largest effect? These just weren't questions that people were being able to answer with any degree of robustness because there weren't any established methods for doing so. And the other thing that really worried me was everyone talked about existential risk as if it was a field that came to existence in about 2008. So it only has a history of 12 or so years. But that's patently false. People have actually been worrying about the future of humanity for centuries. Um, You know, people were worried about um, nuclear annihilation since the Second World War. The first person to worry about 
humans being uh, made extinct due to technological progress was Samuel Butler in 1868. The first people to actually talk about human extinction um, were Mary Shelley and Lord Byron, who <laughs> wrote various stories about it and, and you know, thought about ways that it could, be, um, it could be averted right at the beginning of the 19th century. And all the people would come and talk about this and they'd write something. And actually, often a lot of people would listen. A lot of these were very high profile works, well read in their own time. But then they would just fall by the wayside. And the next person who came and perceived some looming global catastrophe would reinvent the wheel. And that's clearly not very efficient. It's also very odd to be in a community who are thinking all the time about the long term future and humanity as a whole, and who can't see how the discipline that we're in has actually been going on for a good many years, and who hasn't been trying to learn from the successes and failures of the past. So I really said, well, someone's got to do this. Um, I'm not entirely sure that having a PhD in moral philosophy makes me well qualified, but no one else is doing this, so I might as well go and start doing this work. Um, and so a lot of my time has actually been spent just really going through with quite a fine tooth comb um, all, the, all the literature. So I've got had this big survey article out where we looked at every time anyone has put a numerical estimate on a possible future global catastrophe and just all the methods that they used and how they applied them and whether they were using them well or badly. Um, and then what, what people can learn. And it was a really great big literature review. But what we discovered was that there is a huge underutilization of available methods, that there'd be very useful, productive methods like um, fault tree analysis, where you say, what's a possible future catastrophe? And what are all the things that might cause that to happen? And what are the things that might cause that to happen? And what are the things that might cause that to happen? And you work backwards from the catastrophe to look at the conditions that could precipitate it, and then try and assess the risk from that. This, this is a really strong, powerful method. It's used by engineers a lot. And there are a lot of studies of this within nuclear security almost none out of it. No one had been trying to do fault tree analysis for, for instance, for catastrophic climate change, all the things that might go wrong, or all the things that might go wrong with a global pandemic. That seemed a bit, a bit of a problem. But the other thing that we really quickly realized was even when um, methods were being applied, they were often being applied by people who hadn't really studied them, hadn't really paid attention to what they were meant to be doing, and were just kind of, let's write this paper and put it out there. Um, so we're now really, you know, trying to learn from that and be a lot more rigorous um, in applying these methods, applying them more broadly. So, for instance, we're, we've been doing some research looking at this question of what are the things that might precipitate a climate catastrophe? And you've got the, the two that people talk about most, one of which being kind of really extreme climate change and climatic tipping points that could see, you know, the, the Earth's temperature rise 10, 50, maybe even 20 degrees centigrade. Um, the other one being really alarmist predictions that, oh, well, we'll all be wiped out because the sea level will rise and it will inundate nuclear reactors and they'll all explode because that's what happens. And, you know, neither of these really seem to us like actually these were realistic disaster scenarios. So we were thinking about, well, what are, you know, realistic ca catastrophes? And actually we see a much bigger threat in just 
the level of global complexity within things like the food supply system and how that relates to you know global security and um, loss of biodiversity and all the all the various ways in which one thing can set off another and you can get cascading um cascading catastrophes all around these different systems so that's been one big thing we've been doing there's actually a couple more survey articles in the works um which i hope to get up this autumn um but it's been a long process one of which is just this this history just telling the story of existential risk and all the people who worked on it and you know how many times people kept on replicating each other's work um, but also the story of the last you know 12 15 years when this community they self-identify themselves as working on existential risk actually how our thinking has changed and evolved and really just trying to show people where they sit in this intellectual landscape and hopefully broaden their um their horizon to think well you know i am working in one context and one set of values and one set of principles but there are others as well and then a third big survey article we've been working on is actually going back to this question of morality and a common assumption that you have to be a consequentialist to really care about human extinction um and as i say we've done some direct philosophical research making the case that contractualist and uh, virtue theorists and other kinds of ethical theory care about global extinction but we've also gone back and looked at precedents and um you know for instance it's really interesting that immanuel kant was actually one of the very first philosophers to consider human extinction and talk about it in a rational way as well as being this big towering figure in um the the, the history of moral philosophy and someone who whose theory is often interpreted as implying that we don't need to think about human extinction but that certainly wasn't his view so again just trying to show people that there are a lot of different ways in which we can think about this and we don't have to require everyone to accept a certain set of ethical principles to make the case to them that we need to be doing more to tackle human extinction so one thing that i found very interesting when you mentioned uh, i guess about the difficulties of defining you know numbers that can go into the models or like these probability of these events occurring right is that it's and this feels very obvious once i state it out loud but like you can only observe these events once right uh, which means that they're inherently kind of unknowable, right? There's no past yep. data set of nuclear wars um, because if there had been a nuclear war in the past, we probably wouldn't be around uh, to, to predict when the next one's going to be. And that means that you need to have these more, I guess, complex models and also these expert holistic judgments um, going in um, uh, into, into these estimates and, and these predictions. Yeah, I mean, there's this famous quote from Carl Sagan. He says, you know, um hypothesis about the threats from nuclear war are not amenable to empirical uh, verification or at least not more than once <laughs> <laughs> and that definitely that definitely goes across all of the different different theories that we're working with i mean there are lots of different ways that uh, you can get around that problem so this idea that in order to assess probabilities and risks you need to look at um data sets that have those occurring that's i think many people would now say quite an old fashioned view about what probabilities mean so we've got this these two main camps in probability theory uh the frequentists and the bayesians and the frequentists say what it means for something to have a probability say of 50/50 is that you you have this long historical you know this data set and it occurs half the time or something like that 
Um, the thing about that is frequentists only can really use probabilities to talk about the past. They can only say that what we have observed in the past was that this event occurred with this frequency or, you know, this event was linked uh, with a high probability to this other event. They can't actually tell you anything about the future um, because as soon as the future happens, that just adds more data that needs to be added to their data sets. So there's the other camp, the Bayesians, um, who, who have a very, very different view about what probability is. They don't think probability describes these facts about the world, that a certain event occurred so many times in the past or would have occurred so many times in the past even. They think it's, it's kind of like you're making a bet about the future. What odds would you stake um, you know, a certain amount of money in order to, you know, to be willing to make a bet that this would happen or it wouldn't happen? Um, and the way that they think that you should arrive at these kind of estimates um, is using what's called Bayes' rule. And that's really a rule that tells you how to incorporate new information about probability into your existing probability judgments. So they can very happily talk about things that haven't happened yet, so long as we can find some relevant information about this. Um, so, for instance, you know, one of the, the early successes of Bayes' theory was working out the probability of air crashes in new models of aircraft. Standard frequentist probability theory says you can't do that. If you've got a new aircraft, it's never flown, you can't say anything about the probability of it crashing. You actually have to have it crash a couple of times. Whereas Bayesian says, well, no, that's not true. Because firstly, I know it's an aeroplane. And I know that aeroplanes, you know, have a certain crash a certain amount of times. So that's, I can make a first stab at it by saying, let's just assume it, it crashes as often as an average aeroplane. But then I can actually improve that. I can say, well, it's not just an aeroplane. It's an aeroplane with this particular design of wing. And it's an aeroplane that's been specifically you know, developed to solve this particular kind of problem. But I can also say that with new aircraft like this, there's going to be teething troubles. And this is what we know about how often airplanes suffer, you know, crashes because of teething troubles. And I can build a model about this airplane, combining all my different information together using Bayes' rule, and come up with um, a, 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 you know, a subjective estimate for how likely I think it is to crash or not to crash. Now, what we know is I have just come up with a subjective opinion. I have a belief. Actually, someone else would and, and could come up with a completely different opinion. And um, it would be, in a sense, no more valid so long as we were both working with the same information. But what we also know, this doesn't violate what I've just said, is that if you apply Bayes' rule properly, over the long term, you would, if you were making bets, you'd end up ahead. You know, you will achieve better results. You will achieve good judgments by making um, probability assessments using Bayes' rule. That's, that's a real kind of cast iron law. Um, so it's, it's one of these things, kind of, you know, almost like quantum interference or all these other weird things in science. Different people will have different assessments. Don't be troubled by it, because so long as everyone's applying the rule correctly, everyone wins in the long, in the long term. Everyone's judgments are improved in the long term. Um, and I think there was a lot of hostility to this view throughout most of the 20th century. But in the 21st century, just more and more cases 
have come up where people using this approach to probability estimates have just performed so much better at actually making accurate assessments of how likely a certain thing is. Um, you know, for, this, for instance, was one of the big things that made 538, the, you know, the big American political website, such a success when it was first introduced, was it was one of the first big public-facing um, probability tools that based its judgments on Bayes' rule and didn't, didn't try and use frequentist analysis, didn't just say, let's just go with the polls. It really took all of the information and, and combined it all using Bayes' rule and its predictions were just so much better than everyone else's. So quite quickly, oh, and just side note, they did this in, the, I think it was the 1960 election. One of the TV networks um, um, got um, a, a bunch of statisticians who used Bayes' uh, theorem to predict the election. And they called it for Kennedy. And a lot of the other models were saying Nixon was going to win. And the television sh- uh, program, I think it was on CBS, they, they said, this is rubbish. You, you can't go against the standard models. We're not going to put this out. They, they just completely suppressed the fact that they had this prediction. And obviously, Kennedy won. Um, so it was used, but it just wasn't trusted. But 538 being public facing, people were able to see how successful it was. And now all of the political prediction engines, you know, they've all moved over to this way of thinking, and in many other domains as well. So, you know, this, this does allow us to say a lot more. But we still need to be rigorous if we're going to actually use Bayes' theory correctly in how we gain information, how we interpret that, interpret that information, and then how we actually combine it. And it's no good just saying, well, you know, I'm an expert, therefore I can tell you what the answer is. No, you, you really need to have a robust method for, for bringing all this information together or it's, you're not going to win. It's not, the, it's not subjective opinion that's won. It's well-formed subjective opinion that's that's worth listening to so one last question i have on this like methodology side is and this is a skepticism i i often come across is why do we intrinsically care about really putting an exact number on these things um if the threat of nuclear war is one in 1,000 or one in 2,000, does that really make a difference? And should expected value calculations really be what I'm judging these, these very important decisions on? So what exactly is the value in really coming up with these very definite, precise numbers? I mean, it's really important to, to bear that in mind. And one of the things that we are most often asked is, what are the biggest risks facing humanity? Give us a top 10. And we don't answer that question anymore, partly because it just gets misused so much, but also because it's the wrong question. It doesn't actually matter whether um, the threat of nuclear war, it doesn't matter much whether the threat of nuclear war is one in 1,000 or two in 1,000 or even one in 10. What matters is how much can we reduce it by? And what is the effect of a certain policy or a certain research program going to be on reducing it. So when I talk about us assessing the, the risks associated with certain outcomes, in some, in some sense there actually isn't a risk because what happens is going to depend on what we do. But what we need to understand is what are the effects of our actions going to be? And that's what we're really evaluating. So understanding the background level of risk is really just um, a little bit of, of, of work you have to do in advance in order to understand what kind of effect you're having on that risk. 
And that's why combining these approaches with something like fault tree analysis, where you look at all the conditions that would be necessary in order to bring about a global catastrophe, and then systematically try and address each of them or look for um, you know, policy options that are going to address more, more um, multiple different um, conditions or that will stop uh, cascades running down the fault tree. That's what, that's what matters, is finding those things, but also knowing whether these are really going to be worthwhile. Because we can spend a lot of time and energy on things that probably aren't going to work. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think that the US and Russia just are going to change the nuclear dynamics between them. There is, there are two, it's too contested. There are too many global political tensions at stake there. We really need to find better interventions and better ways of working with the current global political situation to reduce nuclear risk because it's, they're, they're going to be more effective. We, we will reduce the overall risk level more by doing that. Um, and that's, that, so that's the kind of judgment that we really, we really want to be making. And that's the kind of judgment we really are looking to inform here. This is a clumsy segue. Um, but what happens when we think in these Bayesian rigorous terms in the context of climate change? You mentioned it a little bit earlier. And I think you've written about it under the guise of what you've called a global systems death spiral. What, uh, at least on your assessment, does the most likely kind of catastrophic risk look like that's precipitated by climate change? Yeah, so, I mean, the global systems death spiral, it's, it's clickbait. But it describes something which, um, you know, is, is much more substantial. And as I was saying, that's really... You, you very often see people writing about the risk of climate change and they will say, the, I'm going I'm to limit myself, I'm going to be concerned with the direct impacts of climate change, with the impacts of you know, rising global temperatures, sea level rise and so on. Um, and actually, the, really the point that we're making with that paper is we think if you look at what could go wrong with climate change, the most likely situation is some kind of general systemic collapse of, of, of the global order um, of, you know, complex societies, organized states, global trade, all of these things. And the, the thing that's going to trigger that isn't one cataclysmic event. Um, this kind of day after tomorrow scenario, you know, I mean, that, that obviously isn't going to happen, but you know, sea levels rising and all of the world's cities being flooded, actually probably, you know, we could respond a lot to rising water and some cities will be protected and others will migrate and it will likely be quite a slow process. But there's a lot of complexity going on. There are lots of ways in which one in in system interacts with another. And we know that there are quite broad safe operating standards we know, for instance, that the global food system was not disrupted by COVID-19 pandemic. Some people thought it would be, but there has been no um, overall disruption to it. So these are robust systems, but they are also highly interconnected. And that does um, strongly imply that if one of these systems gets pushed too far out of um, equilibrium, that would have cascading impacts on the other systems. Um, so, and we, we focus just as a kind of proof of concept of this idea, really, on interactions between 
um, loss of biosphere integrity, that's things like um, biodiversity loss, soil erosion, and so on, um, the global food system, and the global political system, and, and international security in particular. Because there are very well, you know, very well researched connections between these three systems. Um, and we don't just need to speculate about, you know, one story, one way in which these might go wrong. We can understand the connections between them. So that's, that's kind of our expected scenario of where the bulk of the, the probability of climate change ca causing a global catastrophe lies. That's our hypothesis. Um, I, I wish that we were further down the road than just having a hypothesis, I have to say. But it, this is very much an uphill battle. And this is um, our first step. So we've got that. We've got the research and the scholarship that we can point to that really sets out the interconnections between these systems and the current stress level that each of them is facing um, and how that can be expected to rise. We've also got a kind of policy scan of different ways of responding both to um, climate-induced collapse of any one of these systems or how to isolate such a collapse so it didn't cascade around the various systems. And that then gives us a framework in which we can, in future, apply Bayes' rule and apply this solid statistical reasoning to work out which of these is likely to be the, the, the biggest, um, you know, mo most significant policy options for reducing that. We, we suspect that that will be mitigation through more aggressive um, reduction in greenhouse gases and or negative emissions technologies. Um, but that, again, is just a hypothesis. Um, we are looking at a range of different policy options. Um, and once we've identified those, then we can go back and compare what we find to what is being offered by kind of both what we see as quite an alarmist worldview that says that we need to stay clear of even two, three degrees of warming, um, there is some reason to think that, but there would also obviously be huge shocks to the international system of imposing that kind of economic damage on everyone. Um, or the other the sort of the other side of the, of the scale where people think that it would be safe to go up to higher um, levels of, of greenhouse gas concentration. And we can really make a comparison of which kind of um, policy framework that's being suggested by these groups seems to offer the, the best uh, rewards to costs. So at, unfortunately, it's still a work in progress. But having worked on this, having done all these big, um, you know, surveys, I'm at least confident that I'm now going in the right direction. And that the teams that I'm working with are now really putting our, our efforts into something that will produce good work that can hopefully survive us, rather than just being, oh, Cambridge scholars say this, that's very significant next you know next week something new uh it's not so much a question as like a i guess a general reflection on what you said and i think if these like hypotheses that you mentioned are true right i think it leads to some very interesting kind of policy implications as well that might be counterintuitive in the sense that you mentioned this this two degrees right and whether that target is really the target we should be going for because either we are much less resilient than we we think we might be and uh, even one degrees or even one and a half degrees could uh, really lead to these these very troubling dynamics. Or um, if we are more dynamic, then um, we might even, you know, get away with with two degrees. But it kind of, I guess, leads to this general thought that it's not just about the 
uh, effects we have on the climate, but also how resilient we can be as a society. And presumably we have some influence, right, over how we, uh, how, how resilient we, we choose our societies to be structured. Yeah, I, th I think that's just a, a very interesting thought that um, uh, has, has really been provoked her. And, and even more so, this is the sort of loop that I really want to someday manage to get my head around. And I've never spoken to anyone who can get their head around it. We do have a choice over how resilient we are and how much effort we put into mitigating climate change will have an impact on how resilient we are to that change. And I think a lot of people who really want to advocate uh, for very aggressive climate mitigation, which is something that I also support, but they want to have a view that this will just be a better society. We will actually be more resilient. We will be, we will flourish more, you know, we will have a better quality of life, all of these other things, if we all cut our carbon emissions more drastically. I don't think that's true. I think what is true is that at present, we are wasting huge amounts of, you know, our greenhouse gas budget, let's call it, on things that are not making us more resilient. Um, but I think that we really do rely a lot on fossil fuels. Um, we, we can't get around that. And there, there's a question in terms of how much do we want to go for sort of cutting the fat and trying to build a more resilient way of using fossil fuels or just cutting out the fossil fuels and being kind of indiscriminate about what gets affected. Um, and obviously you'd like to see both of those things, but those can actually point in quite different directions because we don't even yet have a good idea of what we're trying to be resilient to. Um, so there's just, there are so many moving parts to this puzzle. And I guess rather like population ethics, you know, for any one scholar, this is a bottomless pit of doom. One of the things that I think scares me more than anything else was I saw um, there, there, there was this article someone wrote uh, about me and the work I was doing. And the headline was like, this guy is working on the global systems death spiral. And I thought, ha, clickbait worked. But one of my colleagues said, um, and I never, I've never actually met this person, but we sort of, you know, we recognize each other as colleagues and we, we talk on Facebook. With I know this guy. As soon as I read this headline, I knew who they were talking about. Ah, shit. You know, how can I, how can it be so obvious that this is me? This is an incredibly hard problem. Why are there not thousands of people working on how do you make this call between resilience and and greenhouse gas um, reduction and you know technological process versus social fixes and how can it just be little old me whose PhD is in philosophy not like not any of these things but I guess you know that's sort of one of the things about Parfit's children is I see a really hard problem and like I want to work on that um, whereas lots of people see a really hard problem and think oh, I'm not sure I'll get funding you know I'm going to work on what all the other climate scientists are working on, which is, you know, what do we think one and a half or two degrees is going to be like? Or what's, you know, what do we think we're going to need to do to get there? Um, or, you know, all, all of the other sort of problems that you can work on where you're going to have lots of friends who are around you and everyone's going to accept that this is a genuine research problem and so on and so forth. You know, I, can't, I, I know I can't fix this. I'm, 
I'm certainly not qualified, but no one person could. Um, so I guess the, the big hope I have is that we can draw more and more people into actually willing to engage in this problem because it's it's definitely a bottomless bit of doom for one philosopher or, or one or even you know a, an interdisciplinary team of ten at the centre of the study of existential risk. This needs thousands, um, and we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay, let's change gears then. Um, you recently ran as an MP for the Liberal Democrats. Um, I guess my first question is why. Yeah, it's kind of a hobby. Um, <laughs> I think it's it's really good to, you know, especially if you're trained as a philosopher and you work in Cambridge or something, you really need to remind yourself what most people are like because you are spending your time amongst a very unusual group of people. And especially if you want to sort of talk about global challenges in the abstract or, you know, policy measures or so on, you need to have some idea of what you're really up against because we do not live in a world in which anyone just randomly turns academic research into policy decisions. You know, I think the UK is one of the best in the world in terms of having an established long-standing constitution with an independent civil service and the rule of law. And we all, it's patently obvious that all of these things are under threat. I'm not saying this, you know, I know there's, there's, I know there's some irony in my saying this right now when all the civil servants are quitting and the government is pulling out of treaties and so on. But actually, we will be one, you know, one of the best, whatever happens. And a lot of that is just because of how long our constitution has lasted for and how long we've been democratic for and how long it's been since we last had a civil war or a revolution or any one of these things. Like this gives our constitution weight and power, which most countries do not have. Um, and yet even in our country, you know, it's, it's so far from perfect. So if you dream in your ivory tower about what you're going to achieve, like you're just, you're kidding yourself. Um, now, I think there's lots of different ways that people can do this. I think that some people are really amazing at scientific outreach and they go and do, you know, public education programs and public engagement programs and citizens assemblies. And that's how they get their interaction. And that's that's great. And there are people who are really dedicated, for instance, you know, I have colleagues who spend so much of their time arguing with people on Facebook, uh, you know, <laughs> about every day, sort of the things that we work on that there's these views out there, conspiracy theories and all of these things. I don't have the, the, the guts for that. So my way of being connected is to just do bread and butter UK politics. Um, and I don't do it because I want to get elected. I wouldn't be a Lib Dem if that was the case. Um, <laughs> and I don't do it because I think I'm going to change a lot. I think... You know, I have reached people in really interesting ways as a candidate. It does give you a platform if you want to talk about some really big things in the public arena. Being a political candidate during election can actually give you the chance to talk about them to an audience who really wouldn't normally listen to these sort of things. Um, so that's that's kind of nice. But 
it's really just rather than doing this as an everyday part of my job, I tend to um, just sort of do it, you know, when there's an election coming up and I have an intensive. Um, but it's always been it's always been very much just sort of a hobby and a sideline and something that, that I can do to to keep me aware of of what what I, what the real situation is. Um, and I think also that has been that has been helpful, I have to say, you know, we've we've been working to set up this all party parliamentary group for future generations. And I think I've had a lot more realism in what that would be like and how it would work than than some of my colleagues. And that has at times been very helpful, um, you know, to have that familiarity and that sense of, oh, you know, so yeah, Simon is genuinely political. We know where he stands. Um, I think this gets a, a very core issue, though, right, which is this relationship between academia and public policy. And I guess like running as an MP is a very extreme way, right, to kind of bridge these two gaps. But there is like this really core question, right, of how do you affect the public policy process? And what role does academia have in this sphere now, right, say to what it did um, in in, in the past and and how this, I guess, more relationship with experts is is changing? And I really don't mean this, I guess, from like the populist aspect, um, and much more from this like like realistic aspect, right? Because the the issues you are talking about are really complicated and really abstract, and um, you know, talking about reasons and persons and the like can be very hard to 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 get your points across, right, to the general public and politicians. Well, well, we live in a very elite country. A lot of senior civil servants did PPE at Oxford and read reasons and persons. Actually, I would say that has certainly opened more doors than it's closed. That's that's really interesting, actually. Yeah, um, but you know that's that's an artifact of, of where we are now, and, and maybe that's not going to going to continue. I, I definitely think standing for parliamentary election, like it has some interaction with this public policy and this how do experts engage with the policy process. I would genuinely see it more as an instance of outreach and engaging with a wider audience. Um, than actually directly with these questions about expertise and politics. You know, MPs, even once they're elected, are terribly constrained. And I guess it, this is, you know, the insight that it's provided me. It's just how, um, how difficult it is for MPs to really say things and really put their weight behind them in Parliament. Because there are two options. One is that you are someone who wins the, the seat on your own merits. So you're a challenger candidate, you're you know, from a, a, a party that's less often elected in your seat, you run a very personal campaign. You then, if you want to keep your seat, have to be forever listening to your constituents and answering to their beck and call. And it's really hard work. And if they say you work on you know, this, that and the other, you work on this, that and the other and you just keep on at it. And, and that's that's who's going to determine what you do. The, the alternative is, you know, lots of MPs aren't like that. They're in very safe seats. They don't have to spend forever talking to their MP, to, to, to their constituents. But they, if you're in a safe seat, you owe your position to your party. You would not be there if you didn't have the backing of your your party and you know, a lot of people who perhaps would be Lib Dems or even Greens and, and who are Conservatives or Labour because they wouldn't get elected if they said what they really believed. 
And those are really your only two options. You can't be in a situation where you don't have strong allegiance to your party and you don't have to really care a lot about your constituents. So there aren't MPs who can spend all their time thinking about difficult academic problems. If I, as an academic, am going to try and sell an idea to a parliamentarian, I need to show them how this is going to make a nice story for them in their local newspaper or something like that, you know, something that actually has political capital for them. And maybe, you know, I have some ins on that, but it's more just, yeah, an acknowledgement of realism that we have to work with real people in the real world. And if you can't communicate your idea so that, you know, I always think of it like so that that my my six-year-old would understand it or, you know, so that it could make a a news story with a sympathetic journalist, it's going to be very hard for it to get space within the the political discourse because ultimately everyone is is that's who they ha- that's who they're responsible to and the alternative would be worse you know there isn't this alternative where actually you have these enlightened technocrats running everything who just think what we write you know no, the alternative to democracy is oligarchy or tyranny it's people being responsible to the wealthy who buy their seats or people being responsible to to the most powerful who you know, take all the power for themselves. That's, that's where we're at. And, and I'm, when I do public engagement, I'm willing to work in that. And I guess, you know, standing as a parliamentary candidate helps keep me grounded and helps keep me aware of that. But I do definitely think it's, it's a hobby. I wouldn't say everyone should do it. You know, no, don't. <laughs> you'll, you'll always regret it. <laughs> um, it's a lot of work. I'm wondering if, uh, if we can draw some comparison to academia here. So obviously, if you're an academic, you're not answering to the beck and call of a party, right? But you did mention that surprisingly few academics work on these big, high stakes questions. And there's got to be some reasons for that, right? So, you know, in philosophy, which I guess I'm more familiar with, it seems to me that there, there are incentives to just make lots of hedged type claims. And like you said as well, like you chase the you chase the funding and the grant money and that goes towards problems that are well-defined and um, therefore perhaps uh, less impactful, um, at least at the margin. I mean, do you think that's that's a real problem and do you think it's a problem which has some kind of solution? I mean, it's a huge problem. Um, Solution-wise, there are are some very interesting options. So one of... um, the, the researchers at Caesar Shahavin, he has a, a proposed solution, which is allocate funding randomly. Um, so you do like an initial check to make sure that a grant is, you know, not too terrible. And then, but accept very many, many more grants than you can fund. And then just fund a random cross-section of them. Because if you use any metric to decide between the grants, researchers are going to try and game that metric um, because they need to, because if they don't, they'll be outcompeted. So bypass that by introducing randomness so that then researchers are selecting projects based on what they want to work on and knowing that that's not going to affect, so long as they are good enough, what they say they want to work on is not going to affect the overall funding decision. Um, I think there's a lot in that. I think it's not viable because I think it can't politically work. I think people aren't going to accept that 
sort of thing. People people really want to believe that they can, you know, make good judgments about what what good research is and what isn't. This morning I was, you know, ranking my my papers and outputs for the ref, and it's just so arbitrary, like what the the selection criteria are and you know what level they're at. And I'm doing is I I have no idea what. Uh, you know the the reviewer is going to think about this is this of national importance or international importance well you know i know that the people who are interested in this are you know all uh, swedes and americans and it all people all over the world are interested in this but i also know that the number of people who work on this is tiny so if a reviewer who's never heard of this particular problem gets this they're going to say what is this this isn't important to anyone like zero Whereas if someone who happens to fall in the right field gets it, they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, I know the people all around the world are very interested in his research and his work is good. So it gets four. It's, you know, it's it's not great, um, but I do think it's what we have. The other the other solution, the thing I've seen and been really inspired by is there are some academics who have managed to step outside of the system and just change it. And, you know, I was talking earlier about existential risk, having this view about itself as starting sometime around 2008, but there's a a reason for this. And it's because Nick Bostrom got, you know, a PhD in philosophy from the LSE, I think it was in 2000. And he just set out to establish the field of existential risk. And he, he established the hell out of it. You know, he was writing papers in journals that no one had ever heard of, but his papers were really, here's what we want to study. This is why it's important. Here's the research agenda. And he got this job and position in Oxford, and he immediately started looking for setting up a funding, uh, so setting up an institute, the Future Humanity Institute there, and having conferences and getting edited volumes out. And really through, I think, just this amazing force of will, persuaded others that this could be a viable academic discipline. And then they started funding it. And you started to get funders who were genuinely interested in funding this sort of work. So it was no longer what it had been before, which was largely people who were already established academics, just going and saying a little bit about global catastrophes or what kept them up at night and was now actually something that young researchers could start to think about getting in. And, you know, Caesar, it's, it's very similar. I mean, um, Hugh Price, who set us up, he's, he just put so much effort into what he called academic engineering, which is how do you make an academic discipline where there wasn't one before? And that can be done. And now we have people who want to fund this work. And that means that we can pull in more people. And the more success we have and the more funding we have, and et cetera, et cetera, you know, it all grows because all of a sudden it does become something that you can get money for. And that's why, although earlier I was saying, you know, this is a hard problem getting all these people involved. I do believe we will get there. I think it will be hard work. And, you know, I've certainly found it very hard going sometimes. But it's reasonable to expect, given the way the system is set up, that we are growing and we will grow to a point where all of a sudden, rather than working against us, the system starts working for us. And once that happens, we're, you know, home and dry. Once you pass the tipping points, I just hope we get there soon enough. But, you know, we're, we're, we're putting our backs into it. So let's move on to the very last questions then. 
We have two questions we ask everyone. And the first one is, what significant thing have you recently changed your mind about? This is, that's, that's, that's like a real job interview question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what are your greatest weaknesses as well? <laughs> I mean, the thing I'm definitely changing my mind about on a daily basis is, like, is coronavirus, you know, poss- potentially a global catastrophe? So we talked about it in January and we said, no, it's not. It's just not lethal enough and it's not virulent enough. It's not spreading fast enough and it's certainly not killing enough of the people who it, who it spreads to. It's a, one in, it's a one in sort of 30, 40 year pandemic. You see these pretty often. We had our last one in 67, 67 and then the Hong Kong flu and then the Asian flu in 1958. And then before that, obviously that there was the Spanish influenza so-called, although we shouldn't because it really has nothing to do with Spain, the 1918 influenza. And that was a baddie. Um, that was much, much worse than this. But the only pandemic that we tend to talk about as a global catastrophe was uh, the Black Death, which probably killed about 10% of the world's population. This is re- realistically going to kill about 0.1% of the global population. Now, the reason that I vacillate coming back to this, and actually, did we call it wrong? Um, should, do we need to go back and actually start talking about this as a, as a global catastrophe? Has been seeing 20% of our economy wiped out and how little people seem willing to react to this. And that worries me because we are all going to wake up from this. And we haven't seen any kind of economic shock like that. Certainly, you know, the Spanish influenza didn't cause a, an economic shock like that. Actually, insofar as we have um, historical GDP data, which there's something called the Madison Project, which puts out GDP per capita estimates for the last sort of several thousand years ago, they reckon that the Black Death didn't have an economic shock like this. Um, the economy shrunk, but so many people died that actually, on average, people got slightly, wealth- slightly wealthier. Whereas that's not what we're seeing at all. We've seen the population stay the same and this huge drop off in um, economic productivity. And I really hope that this is just, you know, Keynes's animal spirits and we're just going to remain bullish about um, uh, what's, you know, what's happening in the economy and we really will bounce back. I think I worry that we're not. And when people realize that a fifth of the economy got taken out, even if by the end of the year, maybe that's just a tenth of the economy, that's still unprecedented. And it's going to have big knock-on effects. And the one that worries me is hyperinflation, because we're still seeing prices remain low. But you know, house prices are rising for no reason I can tell whatsoever. And we're printing lots and lots of money. This really should start to cause quite significant inflation over the economy as a whole. And if that's happening at the same time as lots of people are losing their jobs and everyone's calling for the government to print more money, could we be in a situation where actually a lot of, a lot of developed economies are about to see hyperinflation? I don't know. I certainly can't rule it out. It's unprecedented enough. Um, so, you know, I, wake up, I stay awake at night worrying about this. And this, we, you know, we haven't seen hyperinflation in the developed economy since the 1920s. 
We know that its impacts on Germany were very interesting. Um, it didn't necessarily cause the complete economic destruction of the country, but it caused a massive social upheaval, basically a complete change in who had money and who didn't. And as we all know, that had significant impacts down the line. That's the kind of thing that I worry about. And were we too, too loose about all of this, you know, back in January? Um, I don't know, because then I notice that no one else is talking about this. No one else seems to be worried about this. So then I go back to, it's, it's fine, it's fine. We're not all, we're, you're just catastrophizing. This is what you do. It's also like amazing to me how quickly the question changes, right? Because like literally six months ago, everybody was talking about how there isn't enough inflation. And, you know, uh, a year or two before, we were talking about even like helicopter money, right? Just like printing more cash. So we at least have some inflation. And now the equation all of a sudden has changed completely. And we're beginning to worry about having too much inflation rather than too little. Well, except we've, we've still got really low interest rates and we're going to yeah, carry on yeah. having really low interest rates because they've decided that's the way to get economic growth. Hmm. <sighs> yeah, but that's a whole a whole other topic. So the very last question we ask all our guests are what are three books or articles or other pieces of media that you would recommend to anyone interested in finding out more about what we talked about? So I think my first book... I do, I, it should be um, a book of science fiction because I think science fiction authors have had a big impact on people's willingness to think about existential risk. As I say, going all the way back to Mary Shelley, who was really the first science fiction author, and she was also one of the very first people to write a book about human extinction called The Last Man. And the first non-fiction book that someone wrote just all about the different ways humanity might go extinct uh, it's called A Choice of Catastrophes, and that was by Isaac Asimov. So there have been a lot of, of, of inputs here. Um, the one I would go for, it's quite a popular choice, but The Dark Forest by Zizan um, Lu, which has so many different aspects of um, existential risk in it. It's a book about what do you do when you know the aliens are, uh, are coming for you and they're hostile, but they're going to take a long time to get to you. So you're going to have this big catastrophe happening in several hundred years. How do you prepare for that? What are all the things that can go wrong in trying to prepare for that? Um, and is there actually anything that you can sensibly do now to avert that catastrophe? And I think even though the, the premise of the book is very science fiction and we don't really worry a lot about um, the aliens coming to get us, I think just thinking about that question what can I be doing to make the world a better place in two, three, four hundred years' time is one that we all need to ask ourselves more often. And The Dark Forest is a, a fantastic um, stimulus to having more of those kind of thoughts. Um, I also want to, I also feel I should, I should recommend um, a, an old book, <laughs> a book that actually goes back and that I think we can still learn something from. Um, and my choice for that would be Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. And it's a very interesting book because it's a book about DDT in particular and the impacts that that was having on biodiversity in the 1960s. And thankfully, we have proper controls on DDT. So to some extent, it is a book which doesn't directly have anything to teach us about today. But what I think is it's such a fantastic example of was an individual who was coming up against very significant 
economic and political obstacles to raising an issue. The, you know, the, the, the attacks that were put on her and are still being put on her legacy in many ways were very ferocious. And the fact that she was a, a woman was made it you know, ever, ever so much worse. And what she did and what she shows us how to do with that book and with her conduct around its publication is how to use science and reason to really face this vested interest and this money and this populism head on and really respond just with beautiful writing and with clear facts and with indisputable arguments and with with cool, cool reason. And I think it's a model that all of us um, can follow in, in terms of engaging with once you've worked out what you can do to, sort of, to make the world better in 400 years time, what, how you should actually bring that into fruition. Um, and my third book, it's, it's got to be Reasons and Persons. It's still the very best book I have ever read. And um, when, I, when I finished it, I put up this tweet. It's like, this is the best book I've, I've ever read. Before this, the best book I ever read was The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Before that, the best book I ever read was um, Truckers by Terry Pratchett. Like before that, that, the best book I ever read was A Very Hungry Caterpillar. This is an accolade of, of only four books, and I do not expect to read a better book in my lifetime. It is infuriating, beautiful, brilliant, but just, just to get lost in an intellectual problem and to see such a brilliant mind grappling with that, with such honesty and such commitment and such um, you know, rigour, over pages and pages and pages and really dissecting what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be alive and to persist during time? What is well-being? What is suffering? What is the future? You know, and how should we care about the future? And those are the really sort of big questions that he, he addresses in this. And it's, it's, it's a really, for me, it was a life-changing read and I think it will be life-changing for many people um, and many other people as well. So I would definitely recommend that book. Simon Beard, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Simon Beard on Parfit, Politics and Existential Risk. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Simon. You'll also find links to those recommended books, to papers mentioned in the interview and an amazing uh, biography of Parfit, which Simon recently wrote. As always, it would be great if you could leave an honest review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. If you have constructive feedback, there's a link on the website to an anonymous feedback form, or you can send us an email at feedback at hearthisidea.com. We'd love to hear from you. Finally, if you'd like to support the show more directly and help us continue to pay for hosting, you can leave a tip by following the link in the show notes. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>